Hall of Fame Village Media and the Pro Football Hall of Fame present Football Heaven. At that very moment with the cameras rolling, the lights went out, which um, when you have a bad day at work, you don't necessarily want a crew from 60 Minutes documenting it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's what happened. Hi, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Football Heaven. I am Aditi Kinkabwala. I am joined by the brilliant John Kendall and by the inimitable Joe Horrigan. And today, gentlemen, we get to talk about the biggest thing in broadcasting on the planet. And also, I believe, the most downloaded event on YouTube in basically all of the top however many... Spaces. John, you know what we're talking about, don't you? We're talking about Super Bowl, but more importantly, the Super Bowl halftime show. Usually I'm, I'm surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, on-field uh, uh, artifacts and, and documents. And while we, we have a few that were on, on field, these are uh, entertainment, really, um, uh, artifacts that we have from the Super Bowl halftime shows. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll start here with, with the, the, the more uh, current artifacts that we have in our collection. But uh, these uh, masks or costumes were actually from Super Bowl 55 halftime show where The weekend performed. And this is, you know, during the pandemic. So we all got really used to seeing N95 masks and, and face shields and uh, the designer made that a part of of the show. So all the dancers that were on the field uh, dancing to the weekend performing, uh, they were wearing these these uh, these costumes. And so, you know, pretty uh, remarkable and and certainly left a, an indelible image in your mind from uh, from that Super Bowl halftime show. Ron, do you have to fight people for something like that? Like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Do you need to argue with people, hey, we need some of this? Not really, uh, particularly with, with halftime shows, there's typically a lot of, you know, with, with these masks, I mean, there are a lot of dancers on the field at, at that halftime show. So there, there's enough to go around. Um, but, you know, we are, our, our biggest partner here at the Pro Football Hall of Fame is the National Football League. So, you know, months in advance, we're already communicating, you know, what we would like to see, um, you know, and, and sometimes they have uh, advice for us, like, hey, you know, we're doing this and, and it could be really cool. And we'd love to, to display that in, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, you know, we're, we're in constant communication. So, so no, not typically. We, we don't have to, to really uh, pull any teeth or, or get into any arguments about that. We're, we're always usually to find a, a happy medium. Uh, with, with with what we bring to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So and you've already asked Rihanna what you want from her? <laughs> we, we're already looking at, at what, uh, you know, we, we don't uh, necessarily uh, are always in contact with the performer themselves, uh, but with the league, you know, looking at what's that stage setup look like? What, uh, what What's the act going to, uh, what's the performance going to be like? So, you know, kind of starting to formulate uh, what what could be cool um, display items in, in the museum itself, um, you know, and and it's from from our guest who we're going to be talking to Frank Sapovitz, you know, it's not just that the halftime show, right? It is the NFL is an events organization, and all year round they're putting on these magnificent events with performances um, and, and performers, and so you know 
back behind me here, I've got this guitar. And uh, that was actually uh, from a, a Super Bowl pregame show, Super Bowl 33 Kiss. Uh, the, the, um, it feels like every year they're having a reunion tour, right? And, and uh, this was uh, when, when the four original members got back together. And, and played at the, the Super Bowl uh, 33 uh, pregame show. And so this has all of the, uh, the original KISS members' autographs on it after the show, uh, something that uh, uh, probably Paul Stanley was playing, not so much Ace Fraley, uh, but, but Paul uh, as, a, uh, as the rhythm guitar player there. Um, and then, you know, I, I pulled some artifacts here related to to Frank's career, Frank Sapovitz, who, who we're going to be, uh, who's going to be joining us here in, in just a few moments, uh, but but his very first uh, halftime show or first Super Bowl that he um, he managed uh, was was Paul McCartney's uh, halftime show, and so here's Paul from from uh, his autograph from 2005 um, there uh, in the middle of his career 2008 uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers played um, and then. Finally, uh, his last Super Bowl uh, that he managed was uh, it, at MetLife Stadium uh, in New Jersey, and, and that's an uh, autographed ball from Bruno Mars. So, uh, you know, just just a few artifacts. But, but like I mentioned, you know, it is it is about the halftime show, but it's it's an events organization, and, and they put on tremendous shows all year round. You mentioned the Kiss guitar and. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be there during that pregame show and not far from where their stage was. And I didn't know I was going to get my hair singed by their performance. <laughs> they had those, those flamethrowers coming up out of the stage and you could feel the heat up. I don't know how their guitar strings didn't pop. I mean, it was hot. <laughs> you know, again, it's one of those up close and personal experiences that you'll always remember. That was, uh, you know, kind of a, a hot item for me. The, the, Gene, Gene didn't spit blood on, on yeah. any of your your uh, your clothing, did he? No. <laughs> hey guys, Frank is waiting for us. So before we let him in, though, really quickly, John, can you play that guitar? You know, I actually, as I was setting it up, I realized the strings needed tightened on that thing. <laughs> it's probably a little bit out of tune. <laughs> Have you ever tried? Like when you first got it, did you? I don't know. Strum a few chords. You always got to make sure that everything is working properly. <laughs> you know what he does in his private time, Joe. Right. He's probably putting on Emmett's jersey. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm just gonna see if it makes it. You know, if it fits. What size mannequin we need? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in our database, we're obviously we're always putting in um, you know condition reports, and so if if a, if a string's broken, we gotta know. So how do you know if a string's broken? You gotta strum it a little bit. As long as you're not trying on Rihanna's shoes. Is right. that the them all after. <laughs> and we are going to be joined here by a longtime friend of mine, Frank Sapovitz, who in my world needs no introduction, but in the world of our listeners, this is the consummate behind the scenes guy. Uh, and uh, Paul Tagliabue once told me that Frank Sapovitz has no ego. And I can only concur with that, Frank. Let me just give a brief introduction, however. Uh, for more than 25 years, he was an award-winning event producer. Uh, at the helm of some of the world's most prestigious, uh, widely viewed and well-attended sports and entertainment events. He worked at the National Hockey League's uh, events and entertainment department and then was senior vice president of events for the National Football League. Then he went out on his own, founded Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment in 2014, 
and has been an events management consultant. But the big thing with Frank is he was the guy that was the behind the scenes on the tent pole events with the National Football League. And frankly, in, in transparency, Frank, our relationship really began when you uh, joined us at the Pro Football Hall of Fame as, as my co-producer for the enshrinement ceremony for years. We uh, worked together. It was a tremendous opportunity for me to learn from the master and, uh, and enjoy that relationship. But for our listeners, Frank is the guy behind the scenes at the Super Bowl, the draft, the Pro Bowl, all those things that come off so well and you wonder how it happened. This is the guy. Frank, wel- welcome to our podcast. Oh, Joe, thank you so much. It's it's an honor to be with you today. And I have to say that you know, if I taught you anything, it's about listening and learning. And I did a whole lot of that from you. Well, I appreciate that. But we put off and, and uh, will, again, this year be pulling off a great enshrinement ceremony as we have done in the past. The band is back together again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Frank, you know, give a little background for yourself, uh, you know, and... and you know, because we're talking Super Bowl and it's coming up here and uh, everything is, everyone and everything is focused on the Super Bowl, give us some uh, general, uh, you know, uh, instincts as to what your your responsibilities were on game day and building up to it. You know, even years before I got to the National Football League, I was a, an event producer and I, I was an event producer for Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And my very first Super Bowl experience was as the associate producer of the halftime show for Super Bowl 22. Now, we're up to 57, so that just tells you how long ago that was. It was 1988, and it was pre-Michael Jackson, way pre-Beyonce and Rihanna, uh, back in the days when we just filled the field with stuff. Um, And the stuff that we filled back in 1988, the stuff that we filled the field with was 88 grand pianos, you know, because there were 88 keys on a piano, 88 pianos, 1988. And I guess that's how I got into numerology. Uh, I I actually joined the NFL many years later in in 2005. Uh, My very first Super Bowl at the helm, I suppose, was in Detroit for Super Bowl 40. Uh, that was a that was a great experience for somebody who was very very ad, uh, attuned to doing events in cold weather because I had just left the NFL uh, the NHL um, thirteen seasons uh, working over there including uh, co developing the the Winter Classic with the Edmonton Oilers the very first outdoor outdoor stadium game uh, but when I got to the to the NFL, you know, the, the Super Bowl is, is unimaginably large. It was so incredibly intimidating. And, and you know, realizing that you had to coordinate not just the presentation that the fans saw, not just the, the practices and the games that the players were involved with inside the white lines, but also just every element of it, every bit of logistics from the fan experience to stadium operations to preparing for disaster if you had to deal with disaster um hope you know thankfully we didn't really have to deal with any disasters that actually became career disasters um but but you know there's always something that goes wrong somewhere and and you just have to be able to backstop it right away well you were the master of that though too frank because is you know it's like every good show not the ones you know about that you know the things that might have gone wrong that didn't or did go wrong and got corrected in real time but you were involved in uh, one of the most um, I guess famous um, 
circumstances that <laughs> had to have a, an immediate solution, and yet it was impossible to be immediate. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. So explain a little bit about the experience in the New Orleans Superdome. Yeah, so minute 38 seconds into the second half, right after the opening kickoff was returned by a, by a, a Baltimore for yet another touchdown. Um, <laughs> as everybody knows, the, the power in, in half the building disappeared. The lights went out. Um, television didn't know what to say to people. We didn't know what to say to people. Um, it was actually in the middle of a, of a very odd time for me because uh, 60 Minutes Sports and CBS were doing a behind-the-scenes story on what it takes to put a Super Bowl together. They had been following us around for about a week. Uh, there was a camera over my shoulder, um, over a camera right in front of me. There was a 60 Minutes correspondent, Armin Katayan, uh, who wanted to talk uh, as as soon as possible after the halftime. I wanted to make sure that the game had gotten started again, and in fact it had. So Armin Katayan was asking me a question, and at that very moment with the cameras rolling, the lights went out, which uh, when you have a bad day at work, you don't necessarily want a crew from 60 Minutes documenting it, but, <laughs> but, uh, but that's what happened. And uh, it was a good thing it did because it documented what we did. And, and frankly, when you're in a situation like that, uh, you forget about the TV cameras, but more, uh, you know, more importantly, uh, you forget about all those details afterwards, right? You're, you're just acting and responding in real time. And uh, you just don't remember a whole lot of what you did. The cameras captured a lot of that. Um, the uh, the power that went out was was uh, went out because of a basically a large circuit breaker uh, at the end of the at the end of the halftime because the halftime was put on a generator and all the lights had been turned off, all the power had been had been uh, diverted to a generator for the for this incredible halftime show that Beyonce did. And when the uh, when the halftime was over and the lights were powered back up, the computers that look at power consumption said to itself, "Boy, there's a big spike in power here. We're we're going to shut ourselves off," and that's exactly what happened. Have you ever been surprised? Has a performer just done something at halftime that you were not expecting, did not see in rehearsal? I I, I think the biggest surprise I had was a real pleasant one. And that was, and a, there are some that are well documented that we, were, we won't talk about quite as much. But, <laughs> but um, and that's, it's probably not the one you're thinking of because I wasn't there for that one. It wasn't um, actually the one I was thinking yeah, of. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking of the Madonna show at MIA. Uh, you know, um, flipping the bird to the to the camera. That wasn't something that that we had planned. <laughs> um, but the the most remarkable thing everybody thinks this is the best halftime show of all time and i kind of agree which is the prince show in florida and the biggest surprise that i had was just how incredibly um how incredibly excited he was to do this show in the rain we didn't we didn't schedule purple rain <laughs> we we had purple rain and and i have to be honest with you i was i was really concerned about all of that electronic equipment and electric equipment in the rain. Uh, we we were watching this storm come in, and Joe, you and I have watched storms come in for enshrinement. <laughs> this one this one didn't have as happy an ending. It it came in over the Gulf of Mexico and just sat over the stadium, and and we kept 
hearing, well, the, it'll be gone by halftime, it'll be gone by the, you know, the third, third quarter, it'll be gone by the fourth quarter, never left. It, would, it just rained the whole time. And, and you know, I, I kept calling Ricky Kirshner, who was the, the producer of the halftime that year, and said, is he, is he going to do this? Is he going to go out there and he's going he's gonna to play? He's going to wail away in the rain? I mean, the, it's, it, are, are we not a little bit concerned about that? And, and apparently it was not a safety concern, although to me it was not something that ever left my mind. And, and the result of that is probably the greatest performance on a football field of, a, of an entertainer. Okay, but in I the have to ask you. I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland when the draft was there. They had a whole display of halftime shows. And the legend is that Prince actually said, can you make it rain harder? Is that a true story? I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I was, I was in the, I was in the uh, NFL control um, area when, when he was asked. I never got a chance to... to uh, chat with him and and if he did it doesn't surprise me that he would what an incredible showman and what an incredible show hmm. all right i have another one for you 2013 this one was one of yours beyonce did you know she was going to sing the national anthem at the press conference and were you at all nervous about the drama surrounding the lip syncing at the inauguration uh, no and no. <laughs> okay. No and no. I, you know, Beyonce is, is just an amazing performer. Um, and, and what every performer wants to do is, is show their best to the world. And however that's best done technically, I, I trust them and their judgment when it comes to that. So if, if part of that means that, that some of it has to be recorded, then some of it has to be recorded. Let's face it. When you, when you watch a a pregame uh performer and you hear this orchestra swell behind america the beautiful or the star spangled banner you don't see an orchestra right it is recorded part of it is recorded anyway um but to give the best vocal performance i trust the performer to do what the performer feels is best frank and this i'm gonna uh, blow your horn here a little bit too you know, uh, when a particular artist was announced, I was kind of a, oh, who? <laughs> you know, and you told me that Bruno Mars, this is going to elevate his well-deserved recognition. You were going on and on about, you know, what a, what a real professional he was. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I thought it was a curious choice that year, but he did put on a heck of a show. I, I think musically he was, he was one of the best. Um, and then we had red red hot chili peppers behind him. I think you know Aditi. If I had to think about about that, it was like why Bruno Mars and Red Hot Chili Peppers. I wasn't completely sold on yeah, that yeah. mix, right? If you're going to have performers that are playing with the headline performer, the headline performer that year was Bruno Mars. That was in New Jersey in 2014. I I didn't understand, and I still don't. What what pulled the Red Hot Chili Peppers together with, with Bruno Mars, turned out to be a great show. Frank, we, you know, we, we've talked here uh, about crisis management, um, you know, but you mentioned something early on in the interview about logistics. And, you know, 
can you think back to your career? What was one of the most challenging in terms of logistics uh, uh, events that you ever had to put on? I think without without question, the most challenging logistically was the Super Bowl in New Jersey. It was the first outdoor Super Bowl in a winter environment. Winter environments are no stranger to the Super Bowl. Detroit's held, held it twice. Uh, Indianapolis has held it once. But those were domed stadiums. And the weather could have an effect on people getting to the stadium, but wouldn't have an effect on the game. And clearly when you go to New Jersey to MetLife Stadium, uh, you could have very had had a very serious problem with blizzards or any other kind of, of weather system that might come through that would affect not only the ability of people to get there, but the ability of people to play the game, the players, and, and the ability to broadcast the game. Uh, and you could have very dangerous conditions. Um, the NFL is no stranger to winter games in outdoor stadiums, you know, Lambeau Field being the place everybody wants to go to watch a game at least once in December, right, in their lives. But in, in a Super Bowl is, is very, very different in the way that it functions. Uh, there's a lot more real estate that you have to deal with that's inside the stadium perimeter because, again, it's a level one national security event. So everything you need on game day has to be inside this newly hardened perimeter that could be anywhere from 300 to 1,000 feet beyond the gates. Um, so, so there's an awful lot of snow you'd have to move. Uh, we had all kinds of contingency plans, some of which the, the the media were really focused on, which is, well, what happens if, it, if there's a blizzard like right before the game and you don't have a chance to get your 700 people with snow shovels out? Um, and, and when do you play? Can you delay the game a few hours? Can, do you play the game on a Monday night? Hey, Monday night football, nothing unusual about that. Unusual for a Super Bowl, clearly. But remember, you've got 10,000 people with credentials that you have to communicate with that are coming to work. Um, so there's there's an awful lot of those kinds of things that we had to think about. And I think the prob probably the next, um, probably the most interesting thing, John, um, for the listeners is we had to think about how to produce a halftime show in a blizzard. Um, sounds odd, you know, but the, the Super Bowl halftime is enormous, as you know. It's very technically complex. You get eight minutes to set the whole thing up. Uh, you, you do the show in 12, you get rid of it in seven. Uh, so, so there's about a thousand people who burst out onto the field with staging and sound carts and all kinds of other things and tons and tons of equipment and uh, to get it all set up for the artist. And what if, it, what if the field was covered with ice? Uh, forget the snow, but, but they're coming out to the 50-yard line, right to the logo in the middle of the field, and there's ice all over the place. These thousands of people are going to slip slide. Somebody's going to end up under a piece of staging. You don't want that. So even two and a half years ahead of the halftime, before we even knew who was going to be playing, we were already thinking about how do you do this? Uh, and the decision was made to build the stage into the sidewall of the sideline. Uh, and not try to do it in the middle of the field for safety's sake. Um, disguise that stage so it looks like part of the wall. Uh, you know you're, you now have team benches in the middle of your show. We had, to, we had to design and slide these big arched video screens 
that would just slide over the team benches so that you wouldn't disturb anything that's going on from a game operations perspective. And all we had to do was install you know, those two things and a runway for what was eventually Bruno Mars's um, performance. Uh, in doing that, we never had to worry about thousands of people slip sliding all over the place and somebody getting hurt. So we had to kind of reinvent the wheel there. And that's a bit of logistics that I, I can tell you was was probably the biggest source of sweaty palms. Frank, has anyone ever said no to your knowledge? Has any performer ever been asked and said, nope, sorry, I'm busy? I've, I'm sure that's happened. I don't, <laughs> I, I wish I could tell you definitively, Aditi, but I'm sure that that's happened. I, I, nobody bats a thousand, right? So I'm well, sure that that's no, like, happened. This is the biggest possible stage you can get. But to that point, I've heard that performers are not paid to do this. Is that correct? That's correct. That's right. Um, you have the biggest audience in the in, in in broadcasting on Super Bowl Sunday of any event anywhere any show anywhere. Uh, this is an enormously uh, great opportunity for, to sell music. Uh, at the end of the day, those artists' uh, older songs start to chart again on Billboard. It's like it's amazing. Um, it, it helps get people excited to buy tickets to your shows as you go back out on tour. Uh, if, if you've got to think about, you know, performing for 12 minutes in front of, you know, however many people, 110, 115, 125 million people, um, you know, it's a great investment. And it's, it's also a great and prestigious honor to be able to say that, yeah, you were one of the people who carried one of those shows off. Is there someone you'd love to see that we haven't seen yet? Oh gosh, I'm not the target market, right? <laughs> I'm, oh, is that Joe? Should we be asking? Oh Joe? no, I don't think Joe is the target market either. Oh, my days have come and gone. I, I, you know what? I think it's wonderful though that that the league has started to aim toward the target market, who are the 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 younger fans and fans to be to keep continuing to make the Super Bowl an incredible experience. So Frank, last year when you see that Evan McPherson, the Bengals kicker and Clark Harris, their long snapper have snuck back onto the bench to watch the halftime show. This year when you see Chiefs wide receiver Marquez Valdez Scantling has said he wants to watch Rihanna. Does that give you a moment of pride? Does that make you feel, oh, some poor schmuck is going to be yelled at by the commissioner <laughs> because he's not in the locker room? Well, I think I think he's going to be yelled at by his coach potentially. I think he's got a bigger <laughs> problem there. I don't I don't I don't know that, you know, as much as as Roger is a, is the all-powerful commissioner of the National Football League. Coach Reed, I think okay. the coach I think the coach is the one that they're the most frightened of um, or the most concerned about. Uh, it, it, it's amazing, really, if you think about it. It's one of the, the hallmarks of a player's career to compete in the Super Bowl. And, and what I always tell people is, well, what, what we do, do is dependent on what they do. Our job is to make sure that players and teams can compete at their highest level. We don't want to do anything that takes anything away from that. The fact that players want to sneak back and see what what event people are doing and halftime show people are doing and what performers are doing that that's remarkable. 
Well, from what I've heard, it, it wasn't so much that they snuck back on to see it. It's that they got caught by the cameras watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to tell you, clearing, clearing the sidelines, you know, during halftime and, and, and before halftime, that's a tough job. You don't want that job. Uh, but we did, we did have to do that, and we, we would chase an awful lot of people off the field. Uh, and I and and it's something that we did all game long, just trying to keep those those sidelines as clear as possible. That that's really tough. And part of the reason you want to make sure to do that, other than the fact that it looks awful if you've got a thousand people on the sidelines, is it interferes with the television broadcast. And you know you can't let that happen. I will not out myself for when I was there and shouldn't have been there, but I will say the your people, or at least the NFL's people you're removed, have done a very good job. Last year, I was stuck in the tunnel. I was not allowed on even one blade of grass at SoFi. But still, to me, the idea of actually, to your point earlier about the experience within the stadium versus on TV, I could have sat in our green room and watched on TV, but something about actually feeling, hearing the music live in real time just felt so magical, especially with everything that was going on last year that's that's one of the reasons why it's a bucket list item to attend right. a super bowl people watch it every year but being there is an entirely different ball game literally do you miss it do you miss it or was I, it do you feel good i did it been there done that enough headaches i no of course i miss it it's it's a, it's an incredible experience i'm on to other things but that's you know, I, I have a very, very fond um, af affinity for everything that people are doing there. And I have a, an intimate appreciation of what it is they face. It takes an awful lot to put your life back together after, after working, I mean, basically for three years on any given Super Bowl. But mm -hmm. particularly that last month to six weeks is really, really intense. Um, do I miss it? I, I do, but I will tell you this. I have come to learn how it, how America experiences the Super Bowl. So having a beer in one hand and a plate of wings in the other is not a bad way to experience the Super Bowl, <laughs> I can tell you that much. Well, Frank, one of our sponsors is uh, Visit Canton. And, you know, you were just here uh, yesterday, actually, uh, here in, in Canton, Ohio. Um, you've spent a lot of time here helping produce uh, Hall of Fame enshrinements. Um, what's one thing in Canton that um, is kind of a must for you when you come here? Uh, you know, besides coming to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is there, you know, some place that you like to visit uh, or, or a a treat that you like to, uh, to, to get when you're here in, in Canton? That's ever-evolving, and, and because Canton is ever-evolving. And, and I, I was in Canton this week and went by Centennial Park and was just mesmerized by this incredible, this incredible monument to football um, that is so, so spectacular um, that anybody who visits Canton you know, a lot of people don't realize that, that the Pro Football Hall of Fame isn't in downtown Canton, right? There, it's, it's just outside of Canton. Um, the city itself, though, is, is, a, is a monument to the game. 
And Centennial Plaza, I think, is is probably the most spectacular manifestation of that. I also, I just love the public art that's just been popping up around the city, all of which, of course, is is football-oriented, or much of which is. And, and that's no accident. You know, there's such an incredible amount of pride in the city in terms of, of being the birthplace of professional football. Um, it, it's just expressed everywhere. Uh, so if you haven't been to Canton, you ought to go. You ought to see the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And make sure that you, you spend a little bit of time in downtown, too, because there's some amazing places to, to visit. All right, gentlemen, that's it. That's the first season of Football Heaven. John well, is still standing. It's been a lot of fun. I'm really looking <laughs> forward to season two. You know, that's... I, I, I got to tell you that, you know, the NFL, how many hundreds, a hundred and some seasons now? Are, are we going for their record or just is the second season our goal? <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't, we don't, you know, the standard is the standard. We are aiming to excel beyond that. And Joe, seriously, you do have so many stories in your head that we haven't even tapped into. Well, you know, uh, it's often been said my head should be tapped. You know, not to gain anything out of it, just but drive something through it quick, put him out of his misery. But, yeah. but no, really, we've, it, we've got a lot of things to come back to. We could come back to the best collector, who's also a member yeah. of the Hall of Fame. We yeah. can find out the secret that goes into making those busts, because I know, Joe, you've got a ton of stories about that. We definitely want to get into the selection process and who hated waiting to hear for his name. We've got a lot to come into. So, friends, thank you for joining us for this first season of Football Heaven. And for Joe Horrigan, John Kendall, and myself, Aditi Kinkabwala, we look forward to seeing you for season two. Visit Canton and experience Hall of Famers' hometown favorites for yourself. Plan your trip to America's playing field. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please check out the Hall's other exciting podcast, The Mission. Introducing the HOFV Pass 2023, your ticket to the Hall of Fame Village, a world-class sports and entertainment destination situated around the Pro Football Hall of Fame Museum in Canton, Ohio. The Hall of Fame Village Pass is a limited run of digital collectibles. Owners receive exclusive access to events, promotions, discounts, specials, and more. Get your HOFV Pass at hofvpass.com. For more Football Heaven episodes and bonus content, please visit Hall of Fame Village Media and Pro Football Hall of Fame social media.